law, policy, and markets. Whenever we've seen massive change in the markets, I think those that have been malleable and able to pivot and change have always been successful and will always be successful. Real estate as an asset class is not going anywhere, Alan, but it will change. Welcome to Millbank Conversations. I'm Alan Marks. Today, I am joined by Erwin Dweck, a partner in Millbank's real estate group based in New York. Let's get to it. Erwin, thanks very much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. I'm a longtime listener, first time caller. <laughs> I like that. So real estate is certainly in flux with COVID-19 and the economic response to it. What's keeping you busy? What's keeping us busy has been two things, primarily clients looking at opportunistic possibilities, opportunistic investments. How can they take advantage of the displacement we're seeing in the real estate markets in all areas? And of course, we're being kept busy with loan modifications, deferrals, and workout work that you would expect from such a massive market dislocation. When rescue financing comes in, so you have a distressed property, they need to refinance, there are different ways that the lenders might value that asset. They could look at the asset value uh, itself. They could look at the uh, liquidity or the cash flow that's coming off of it. How are valuation questions and uncertainties playing through in the rescue financing market? I think that is an asset-specific question these days again. So the impact of COVID is being felt disproportionately by different asset classes and hospitality. It's just the single largest question mark as to when hospitality is going to come back, how it's going to come back, what it's going to look like, whether people are going to be willing to travel, whether business travel is still there. And so it's, it's very difficult for people to value hotel assets because of all of those questions that still remain outstanding. The office assets are much easier to to underwrite. If you take, as an example, a Class A office building in Midtown Manhattan or in Hudson Yards, the likelihood is most of those Class A tenants have continued to pay, haven't defaulted, are not looking for concessions, and you feel really good about the valuation. Now, you you can take a macro view about what office in New York is going to look like post-COVID, right? And people are certainly doing that. You're seeing economists looking at that. You're seeing all sorts of class A office tenants saying to themselves, do I need as much space in Manhattan anymore or in any central business district, London, LA, or can we look back at the hotel modeling of of office space that people were looking at back in 2008 to cut costs? So I think all that is more macro, but on a micro level, you certainly could take a view on valuation on an office building. Retail is going to largely depend on your view of what retail looks like. And I think COVID has probably accelerated some of the distress that retail was generally facing that the malls were all under. But I'm not so certain that, you know, strip malls and suburban areas are going to suffer coming out of COVID. We still need urgent care facilities, which is where most of most urgent care facilities are housed in strip malls. You're still going to have your Domino's and your, your food service and your Burger Kings. So to me, I don't think those are going to be as negatively impacted from a valuation perspective. But those challenges certainly continue to plague trades because if you can't as you as we mentioned before if you can't put a proper valuation on it it's really difficult for a buyer and a seller to kind of come to an an agreed fair market value you always as a to bring a a fantasy sports analogy to this you over overvalue the players on your own team and undervalue players on other teams and i think that's the same thing we're seeing now with sellers of real estate which is you overvalue the assets that you currently own because you currently own them and, and maybe you're hopeful and you're wishful that everything's going to turn around just so. Whereas if you're looking to buy it and you don't own it, you're going to, you're going to tend to look at the negatives. 
And that's that's where you get this bid-ask problem. Yeah, while well, we're talking about cognitive bias, I think the idea of kind of looking for confirmation that what we did before must have been right because, you know, we forget about the mistakes that we've made. I suppose that, that probably plays into it too. When you look going forward, which is going to matter more for real estate values? And I, I take your point that in certain asset classes like hospitality, it's going to be different than it might be for, say, public storage lockers or healthcare facilities or, you know, or, or retail spaces and so forth. But what matters more? How long the period of either economic contraction or at least uncertainty lasts or how deep the recession actually is in certain markets? I think it's the length of it because I think uncertainty is really what is what tends to freeze markets. I think economic activity, distressed economic activity to me is still economic activity and maybe that's a pretty narrow lawyer's view of it. But you know, a good market is good. A down market means there are probably still transactions happening. Yes, they're distressed, but at least there's transactional volume. There's at least transactions happening. Right, you can, because you can, you can price risk, but you can't really price uncertainty. I guess that's the challenge. That's exactly the challenge, yeah. So 12 months from now, what do you expect to be working on? I wouldn't be surprised if, if 2021 actually had more loan-to-own plays, more distressed plays. We have a lot of clients that have plenty of dry powder. That's all we read about in the press is how many private equity funds, hedge funds, financial institutions have dry powder and are looking for opportunities. I think people all expected to jump on those opportunities and see them very quickly. But because there's a lot of money on the sidelines that has been on the sidelines, I think those opportunities are actually difficult to come by. And when they're available or widely marketed, you're seeing a fair amount of competition for those assets, for those loans that are trading. I think 12 months time from now, I, I think we still have distress. I think I don't think this is going to be the proverbial V-shaped curve. I don't think we come out of this and everything all of a sudden changes. I, I think your malls are going to be struggling. I think that's transformational changes are probably going to happen to your large shopping malls and your large shopping centers. I think hotels have a long way to come out of this. I, I just don't see how they bounce back so quickly, particularly on the leisure travel side. The combination of leisure travel for much of a population that's being that's out of work is just going to cut the... People seem to be focusing on luxury travel and luxury travel is going to pop back pretty quickly. Sure. I'm not sure how much that drives the entire sector though. When you're talking about your average American who may have lost their job, how quickly that they're jumping on the next plane and spending a week in California or a week in Florida or a week in the Bahamas, that seems like a difficult thing for me to get my arms around even in 12 months time. Well, I want to ask you one more question about this kind of theme you have of the usage of real estate by different classes and how that translates into future value or future cash flow. I'm kind of mindful. I worked on a, a workout and sale of a large toll road in the Midwest that was damaged by the 2008-2010 recession. And it was interesting when you look at the traffic and how it bounced back afterwards, it did not come back to the same patterns it had before. There were certain trends that were accelerated. So for example, big trucks, semi-trucks hauling things from factories, those, those came back just fine. Passenger vehicle volumes were much slower to come back up. And some of that is because of how the economy recovered, but some of it, and you could see it in the spike in smaller delivery van size vehicles, was this shift in how people purchased things. You know, Amazon entered the picture. It was also a shift in how they worked and learned because we started to first see you know remote learning and people working from home. Now, of course, those trends are greatly accelerating in the current situation in 2020 and probably into 2021. That I would think will have a much more profound impact on how real estate will be valued going forward. And I suspect real estate as a class is much more adaptable than people think 
to those kinds of shifting patterns in behavior and land use. The old saying, the old colloquialism about real estate is that they're not making any more of it. And so as an asset class, it's always a good investment from a supply and demand perspective. Whenever we've seen massive change in the markets, I think those that have been malleable and able to pivot and change have always been successful and will always be successful. Real estate as an asset class is not going anywhere, Alan, but it will change. And whether that's somebody like Amazon buying JCPenney and repurposing big box stores at the end of malls, whether that's strip malls adapting for easier curbside pickup and drive-through, whether that's medical office buildings, medical office facilities coming back. You know, we, we have seen many hospitals close over the past several years, or whether it's the urgent care space reinventing itself or growing. Real estate as an asset class is not going to go anywhere. There's always going to be an immense amount of interest in it, but it is going to be the people who are able to think creatively about the uses, the clients that can sort of see what's next that are going to make the money. Any inflection point, as we saw post 9-11, as we saw post 2008, is an opportunity. Are you finding that the, I know there's lots of programs the Federal Reserve is enrolling out that are meant to help stabilize the ABS market generally, but they also apply to commercial mortgage-backed securities. Is that something which you think is having an impact on the market from what you're seeing? I think it's initially, yes, I think it, it, has, been, it has been having an impact on the market because we're seeing CMBS bonds trading in a way that we wouldn't have otherwise expected them to. How so? There is liquidity in the market. So these positions are trading. If you look back at 2008, people were just looking to offload positions. Now you're getting honest to goodness bids on these positions. And I think many people think in the bond space, the CMBS bond space, the opportunity to buy really low is actually already passed. And that's as a result of the government stimulus packages that have calmed the nerves of CMBS participants and market participants, that financing will be available and will continue to be available. So I, I want to unpack that for a second. So there's a lot of people assume that when the Federal Reserve rolls out packages like they've done with TALF or any other kind of liquidity support for credit markets, that is, the federal government is buying securities. In fact, I think a lot of what's happened is just the availability or the willingness and capacity of the Fed to inject that liquidity seems to be stabilizing the markets and allowing the buyers and sellers to trade with more confidence. Is, is that a, a fair reading of it? It is. I, I think that's exactly what's happening with the CMBS markets. I think there's also an interesting thing happening in the CMBS markets, which are, as everybody's heard, there's a ton of dry powder and a ton of people looking to invest capital. You also, at, at the same time, have a strain on a lot of the mortgage REITs or a lot of the traditional bond players who've seen mark-to-market calls. And so where you might see absolute distressed sales, what we're actually seeing is discounts to par on these bonds, but there is availability, cash availability for investment on one hand and willing sellers on another hand, or maybe distressed sellers on another hand, but with enough, enough interest on the other side to keep bids honest. So you're not seeing super distressed trades. Sure, you're seeing you know, 10, 15% off of par, but you're not seeing the absolute just dumping of you know, five, 10 cent paper on the market. Why do you think that's different? Because in some ways, I guess 2008 was a true financial crisis prompted in large part by an asset bubble in, in real estate assets and associated securities. Here, we've come into a different kind of an economic challenge with both supply and demand being hit, but not fundamentally overvalued real estate assets coming in. And in fact, many places we actually have you know housing shortages and pretty high demand. How does that filter into whether or not things are more challenging for distressed sellers today or less challenging? 
I think the view is that fundamentals in the real estate market. Now, let me just, with a, I'll put a big caveat and put to the side, nobody really knows how hotels are going to come out of this mess. So hotels were clearly the first asset class we saw that had to be triaged. So I kind of put that in a separate class because I, I still think whether it's our clients on the lending side, our clients on the equity side, our clients in the bond market, nobody really has a great feel for how hotels come out of this. But if you actually look at the other sectors, right, office, office tenants have actually, at least for class A office tenants, are still paying rents at 90 to 95%. I should say 90 to 95% of class A office tenants are still paying full rent throughout COVID. Retail is a bit more challenging. Obviously, we all know that the malls have been struggling before COVID and COVID just highlighted that. But I think you're seeing some really interesting opportunistic plays in the retail market. So the underlying real estate still has value. And maybe the the tenancy or the ownership of that may change. A, a good example that was publicly announced was Amazon potentially considering acquiring JCPenney or JCPenney's real estate. Now, with the caveat that Millbank is involved in the JCPenney real estate, I, I am not. But just reading the fact that Amazon is interested in JCPenney, to me, is a really interesting take on the mall market. You have these big box stores. Amazon can use them as distribution centers. They can turn them into their smaller retail outlets, and they can drive retail traffic through the malls. That sort of accelerates the pace of the changing mall or retail environment. So to me, I think people are looking at those malls and going, well, the real estate is probably still a good play. And so you can get your arms around the underlying value of the real estate, irrespective in some cases of the tenancy. And I think that helps drive demand for the bonds because it, there is still value in an empty box. And it still it helps those looking to sell their bonds into the market because they know that there is liquidity on the other end of that. I know I remember in, in prior financial crises working for investors who were not so much in the, in the mortgage-backed securities areas, but directly looking at real estate assets where they would deliberately buy debt secured by a property which had gone into default so that they could foreclose on it and change its purpose. So changing a, a half-built hospital into a mixed-use development, for example, or changing a shopping mall you know, into a, an office complex for Google. There's, 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 there are different ways people are looking at, at those kinds of assets if they're real estate developers. I would assume if you're looking at a pool of mortgage-backed securities, there will not be that same ability to intervene directly at the asset level to try to realize value. Instead, you're trying to buy it and hope to resell it to someone else. That's a really interesting point you bring up because in CMBS 1.0, one of the most controversial structural elements of CMBS 1.0 that a lot of our clients took advantage of were things called fair value purchase options. So in the CMBS 1.0 trusts, if you were a controlling class holder, you would have the ability to buy a loan out of the trust at fair value. Now, that was taken advantage of because people could have different views on what fair, fair value was or at the time that they were buying the loan out of the securitization. And there was a perception that certain people had taken advantage of that. Now, CMBS 2.0 fixed that, but there are still opportunities through control bonds in a CMBS trust to get access to a lot of information that you might have not otherwise have about the asset. And there are still opportunities to take control over assets. For instance, if you control a rate bond. A rate bond is a bond within a pooled securitization that relates solely to one asset. So there are still opportunities. There are still loan-to-own plays through CMBS, but more likely the loan-to-own plays we see are going to come through mezzanine loan purchases, which is something that uh, we lived through in 2008 and 2009, and I suspect will continue to be a source of an easier pathway towards a loan-to-own play on a real estate asset. 
if we look at that for a second, you mentioned mezzanine debt. If we look at how things are trading, whether it's you know the broader CMBS market, single asset, single borrower securities, mezzanine debt, are they trading in sync right now or is there somewhat of a range? Part of the problem with how they're trading is valuation. I think people are having a really, really difficult time getting their arms around the fundamentals of valuation, whether that's within the CMBS class, whether that's in a single asset, single borrower securitization, or whether that's MES. We have current clients that own MES debt on hotels who will tell you that they feel comfortable that they're not completely impaired. They know that they are impaired, but they have no idea how much by how much they're impaired. So the valuation issue is presenting, certainly presenting challenges in the hospitality and retail space, a little bit less so in the multifamily space and the office space. And, and so if you have a really difficult time evaluating the value of, of the real estate, then you're going to have a really difficult time evaluating the value of the loan. Now, that being said, we've still seen some people take advantage of some of the structuring in financing, particularly in, me- in the mezzanine finance space to try and exercise loan-to-own plays, even in the New York pause, for instance. So we've seen UCC foreclosure litigation. We actually saw a decision yesterday in a New York court that held that the UCC, a UCC foreclosure sale was not precluded by Governor Cuomo's order here in New York on foreclosure, uh, on a pause on foreclosure or a temporary pause on foreclosure. And that, that case is actually a fairly interesting case to me because there is clearly equity value in the equity, no less the MES loan. And the mezzanine lender is trying to get to the asset in a really quick and swift action, holding out hope that there will be limited litigation or that they can exert pressure through you know, non-recourse carve-out guarantees or completion guarantees, which are structural features of real estate loans that are meant to disincentivize borrowers from fighting with their lenders on the exercise of remedies. If you look at some of the ways that risk retention plays into this, I was always struck that the structure of uh, the risk retention may make a difference. So for example, if an issuer is retaining 5% of the risk of the loss in a portfolio, and they're holding that as a first loss position, kind of a pure horizontal risk retention or HRR, those often would trade at different spreads than one that has a vertical risk retention where they're, where the issuer is sharing or holding that 5% back across all of the tranches. In workouts, are we seeing the same kind of distinction as to how a mortgage-backed security is structured and how it's trading or how the spreads are either widening or narrowing? It's an interesting question because in, in CMBS, risk retention has a very particular uh, carve-out exemption for B pieces in CMBS. So what that means is in a CMBS transaction, if there is going to be horizontal risk retention, so the last 5% needs to be retained, sponsors were able to sell that risk to a third party so long as they entered into what we call a third-party risk retention agreement. That risk retention agreement would require the retaining party to, in effect, have to hold the position for five years or 10 years as extended. And they had restrictions on whether they could, in fact, leverage that debt, that bond. So what you had there was the non-sponsor selling that risk retention piece to a third-party purchaser. We have many clients who did that. But that third-party purchaser has no ability, has no liquidity on those horizontal risk retention pieces. They're not allowed to sell it. They can't leverage it, so there's no real way to kind of monetize that. But yet, they're still subject to typical control appraisal events. And what that means is if, a, if the over, underlying asset goes into a bit of distress, that risk retention party can lose control over the work out of that asset and major decision rights if valuation drops to a significant degree. So we've seen that create incentives for that HRR piece to kick the can down the road as far as they can 
to not really look to solve problems. So in a typical real estate deal, we'd kind of convert sometimes these notes to AB note structures if they need additional equity. Being that creative and having a comprehensive or a more holistic solution to a problem today is much more challenging in a single asset, single borrower deal than it would be for a balance sheet lender and probably even more so than it was in 2008 in CMBS 1.0. Now, that being said, if, as you mentioned, the retaining sponsor went vertical, so by that I mean they took 5% of each tranche, then that control bond could still trade. And we found that those control bondholders are utilizing many different ways to exert control. They're willing to be more creative, but they're also able to, you know, the, one of the dirty secrets of CMBS is that the controlling class has the ability to appoint a special servicer and replace a special servicer who is effectively controlling the workout process and any loan mod process for any reason or no reason. And that creates a massive alignment of interest between the special servicer who is acting on behalf of the entire trust and the controlling class holder who is able and expressly able to act in its own self-interest and it will act in its own self-interest that has no fiduciary duty to any of the other bondholders. And I, and I suppose that controlling piece then is probably worth more too, to the extent that its value is tied to controlling fee income and cash flow. So we've, we've exactly, that's exactly right. We've actually seen control bonds pricing higher than more senior bonds just because that control element in and of itself is valuable. Urban, that's great. We'll have to leave it there, but thank you very much. I know you're busy and I really appreciate you taking the time to talk. Thank you very much, Alan. I really enjoyed this. Thank you for joining us for another Millbank Conversation. We trust you find our expertise and insights compelling. Learn more at millbank.com.